I think I'm having an art attack. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Art Attack with your host, PhD extraordinaire, art historian, professor, overall articulate, positive human, Lizzie Dastin, and myself, Jason Boa. (laughs) Just kidding, Justin Boa. People call me Boa. And today is a very special day because we've kind of... It's interesting that we never have spoken about Salvador Dali before, and because Dali is one of the most important iconic artists ever, and certainly one of those artists that every single person kind of goes through. Does that make sense? They, they, they process him in a way where if you ask the average person who your favorite artist is, I swear to God, one out of three will say Salvador Dali. I think that's true. First of all, because of his ubiquity, in the visual lexicon, but also because of the iconic painting persistence of memory. And since his work really taps into the collective unconscious and something that is unknowable but universal, it makes sense that everybody would use him kind of as a touchstone. Yeah, and I think also his work is very close to his persona. Dali was one of the first artists to captivate the imaginations of everybody by, you know, with his signature style Dali-esque mustache, with his signature style, uh, the way that he would dress, the way that he would act. He was a celebrity. You know, he was a guy that was on the Dick Cavett show. He was on talk shows. He was on radio. He was on TV. He made movies early on. He was very much into being a celebrity like Warhol, but before Warhol, obviously. I mean, So before we get into Dali's very bizarre life, uh, let's talk a little bit about where Dali was from. So Dali is Spanish. He was from Figueres, Spain, España, which was 14 miles from from France. Uh, And it was very interestingly uh, said by one of his good friends that he didn't really speak Spanish well. He didn't really speak English. English well, and he didn't really speak French well. None of these languages really was what he did well. What he, he painted did, well. He painted very well. He did. He painted very well. And he grew up in a, in a little town. His father was a, was a pretty powerful lawyer. Uh, his sister was in love with him. It was a very diabolically incestuous connection, whether they ever uh, consummated that incestuous sexual relationship or not is not known, but we do know that she was definitely deeply in love with him. And he, she was his muse early on in his paintings. And she was, she was the one that was the sitter for many of his early uh, portraits. And he was very timid, painfully timid, painfully shy. Uh, Somebody who was really an introvert. So as he grew up in this introverted way, his father was was kind of a tyrant, and they had a very love-hate relationship their whole life. And I think Dali respected his father because he was the tyrannical, audacious character that Dali became in his persona later on. But his real-life character was just this 
isolated guy who oftentimes craved and lived in solitude and had to, you know, probably much like Andy Kaufman or certainly Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman, had to create something that was larger than life to exist in the world and to become who he was. Also interesting about his early life is that he had a brother, an older brother who died. Right. And this brother's name was also Salvador. Right. And his parents would say to Dali that he was the recreate, uh, the uh, reincarnation of his brother. So imagine what kind of psychological pathos would come with that when you're told that you are not in fact yourself, but the embodiment of somebody who's transitioned. Yeah, he was, uh, I think it was nine months later, they had Dali. And, and this is after the brother died. So, yeah, he didn't even, he wasn't even able to kind of remove himself from that myth that he was the reincarnation brother until very later in his life. And so I think if you look at the psychology of Dali, I think he was very messed up in many ways. And, 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 and kind of known as a liar, you know, hmm. but at the same time, even though his dad was intense and from what what people say abusive uh, emotionally and physically, he also said he Dali was a genius. And Dali always said, if you believe you're a genius, you become a genius. I thought that was really interesting. That is. And the dad was also really supportive and I think propulsive for Dali because I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember reading this, that he hosted an exhibition of all of Dali's charcoal drawings when Dali was only 19. Mm. So at a very early age, the dad recognized the genius of his son and was very encouraging. And Dali's mom passed away when he was only 16. And so I think this dynamic between him and his father was really a, a motivating one throughout his life, whether it be in body or in psychology. And your tethering his biology to his work, I think, is really important because his work is so steeped in psychological mythology. Mm -hmm. It really is. And it's about uncovering himself through the automatism of his art. And that really aligns well with surrealism, but I think that it was particularly profound in the work of Dali. And before we move on to the work of Dali, just one more anecdotal story about the father. There was a story that this woman told of Dali, and he was having some argument with his father, and he took a bag of his sperm and he threw it at him. What? Yeah, he took a bag of his sperm. And, and the interviewer says, well, how did you know that that, in fact, was his sperm. Like, what makes you think that? That didn't happen. She goes, no, it did happen. This is like an 80-something-year-old woman telling the story. She said, it did happen. He goes, how do you know? That's, a, that's a, like an insane story. He goes, she said, I was there. The sperm went all over the dad, and, that, and that, that was the end of their relationship, for the most part, is that moment when he threw the bag of sperm in him. And obviously, it's a, it's a metaphorical act. The that destruction is, of the father and the assertion <laughs> of the self, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I could go on. We could have a whole podcast yeah, about why he, why he threw this bag of sperm. And this is like the alleged bag of sperm. But it's interesting uh -huh. because he was obsessed with Freud. He, he was just, he met Freud actually, and he showed Freud his work and wanted to talk about his writings on psychology. And Freud didn't want to have anything to do with that. He just wanted to 
uh, he just wanted to enjoy his painting. And Dolly was like, no, it's not about my painting. It's about my writing. And Freud was like, okay, this guy is dissociative. He's, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> he started to analyze him right away to all his friends. But, but I think that, you know, he was really, really, really obsessed with his sexuality. And in his work, uh, one of the main things we see is that cane, the crutch, right? And, yeah. And I'm sure you can talk uh, ad nauseum about it, but but definitely my analysis, you know, really seeing that crutch everywhere, holding up the flaccid penis everywhere. Because he talks about the penis. He talks about sperm. He talks about the crutch. He talks about being flaccid. And I think that Dali at some point was flaccid or was afraid of it or or it was such a metaphor that he's always having this crutch hold up the flaccid penis. Interesting. Or it represents something that should be active that isn't able to be because when do you use a crutch? When you're not able-bodied. And so I think that sexually he wasn't able-bodied or he felt the weight of that anxiety and sexuality is definitely a theme in his work. I would say the leitmotifs throughout were sexuality and decay and death. Right. And so we see those. He was a filmmaker. He made jewelry. He was a photographer. Mm-hmm. He was a painter. And so in all of his different art choices, we see those themes throughout, which I think is really interesting in its consistency. But there, we don't have any record of whether he actually consummated his sexual self. And a lot of people wonder whether he was a virgin. Which well, no, he was a virgin up until he was 22. Until Right, when he, that muse gala. Yeah, she came to the door naked, apparently, with his friends. He was his friends. His friend's girlfriend was her, her wife at the time. And it was love at first sight. And then they, he was the first time he lost his virginity was to her. And I know that they had a very bizarre, open relationship. He was completely in love with her, but... They were both open, and she was, you know, one of those women who had an incredible body, and she was Russian, and she was, according to his friends, not an intellectual, not an artist, but she was a muse, and she had slept with a lot of people in his scene. So when he met her, he was able to sleep with her and experience, and as he says in his own words, like his orgasms were incredible, especially the first one, because he had all this sperm that was built up over years and years and years from being a virgin. And then he meets this woman who shows up naked with this incredible body and then has the sexual, this sexual, uh, awakening. Sure. And I think that there are inconsistencies in the literature and in the quotes and definitely they had a sexualized relationship, but whether there was actual penetrative sex that, remains unknown. And, and, and yeah, and that's what I was thinking too because it feels like she was a beard in a lot of way and there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that he was also gay and he had uh, other relationships with men. But from the work you have to extract that there is something weird and off that he is impotent that he that he had a flaccid penis, that something bizarre was happening in his sexuality. Oh, yeah, and we see that in the paintings all the time. And going back quickly to what you said, his relationship with his dad, apparently when Dali was really young, the dad would show him explicit photographs of genitalia and STIs. And so Dali was so afraid of contracting anything because he saw these really explicit photos 
that apparently throughout his life he had a fear of female genitalia in particular and also just this fear of a sexual weight of expectation that people in society and probably expectations that he had on himself, how they manifested in his relationship with his own intimacy. And the persistence of memory is a great example of that because in the foreground, we have this flaccid, amorphous object. And it is actually a self-portrait, a stylized self-portrait as if it's flayed skin And it's not skin that is erect or actionable. It's something that is decayed and limp. And I think that echoes his fear of his own sexual impotency. And that that painting is also about time. It is very much explicitly about time. That's one of the iconic examples of the melting clocks with all of these ants crawling over another clock. And that's about decay and about trying to stop time but not being able to and we're positioned within this landscape and a landscape is typically a fertile ground for nature to grow and there's a tree but the tree is dead and the landscape is barren everything is still and even though it's a visual object it's a painting to me it feels hot It just feels oppressive, it feels still, it feels inactionable, and specifically related to this self-portrait that's in the foreground that just isn't able to move, isn't able to perform, and I think that's very directly linked with his own anxieties about his sexuality. So... Is, this painting is amazing, right? Because this, this, like, we always talk about these iconic paintings, it's... Uh, it's the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. It's Michelangelo, the creation, you know, Adam and God it, in the Sistine Chapel. It's uh, Grant Wood's... Uh, American Gothic. American Gothic. It's these classic pieces that resonate with everybody. So they transcend Jansen and Gardner's art history books into the public consciousness where it becomes these iconic pieces. And why is this one right there. Why is this one with Starry Night? Why is this one with all of those? Because every single kid at one point had that poster in their dorm room, right? It's And it's associated a lot with like stoners, right? Like stoners, like, this poster is crazy. Dolly's my favorite. Right. And Dolly's <laughs> my favorite artist by far or LSD or, you know, some some kind of some kind of psychoactive drugs that people can relate it to. But people just... It's such a weird piece, right? It's just so off, but everybody can relate to this piece. And I want to even further say that at one point, I feel like Dolly was everybody's favorite artist at one point. Like, I definitely remember <laughs> me like, yeah. And, and my work, I believe the surrealistic aspect of it is definitely influenced by Dolly. Just the the warp perspective and and the twisted characters and the elongation, elongation of yeah. form exactly yeah. but it's but th- i mean there was elongation of form before that i mean look at the mannerist going way back to el greco way back to andrea del sarto you know all the way up to ernie barnes the, you know dali was born in 1904 so he was he was painting until the 80s when he died in the 80s so he was i don't i just feel like his work somehow resonated with everybody Everybody across the board, from stoners to surfers to, you know, Puerto Ricans to African-Americans to people who are like super duper wealthy, you know, the wealthy class and to the to the people who are the lower class to the blue collar people. 
he just resonates. And I think that he would probably value that feedback that you just offered more than anything else because he was trying to capture some sort of universalism in his art. And I think that hearing that his work resonates with so many people across so many different spectrum would just be exactly what it is that he was after. And I think the reason for that is probably because of the basic tenets of surrealism, which is the movement under which he worked, which is all about releasing your analytical processing of the world and trying to shut off the way that you intellectualize by seeing and instead by tapping into feeling into something that's instinctual, something that is unnameable, but something that is universal. And it's like an automatic doodle or just Mm. releasing yourself from the physical trappings of the outside world. And so I think that just that, that internalized use of art is very resonant with lots of different people because we all have that. We all have those collective instinctual drives. So, and and what you said is really important, I think, and that's very valuable. When Dali moved around the world uh, to, you know, many places, Barcelona, Paris, he came across uh, Breton. Yes, André Breton. André Breton, who was the leading surrealist and certainly... Uh, the fa- was he the father of surrealism or he was the mouthpiece of surrealism? Yeah, because he, as far as I know, didn't really create art, but he wrote about it. So okay. he was the intellectualizer of surrealism. For sure. And so, uh, so Dali was in that school and became, you know, the most famous one. And a lot of people will say that at that point, surrealism was dying. And Dali kind of resurrected surrealism into, into the public domain and made it cool and amazing again. And But what you said, that surrealism is this movement where it really exists in dreams, like that unconscious reality where you're just going into this fourth dimension. So how do we as artists take this fourth dimension in the wake, in the woke world and portray it in the visual world? That's what they were doing in a lot of ways, right? They were, they were capturing all of the Freudian psychology, all of the stuff that's happening underneath the layers, underneath the layers, and then trying to capture it in the in this in our dimension here in time and place in a visual way on canvas. And that's what Dali did so well because sometimes you look at his stuff and you're like, yeah, this feels like a dream and it also feels like a nightmare. And I've had dreams like that where you can feel the different spectrums of being you know, going to sleep and getting lost and not being able to tell whether you're in the the woken world or this the world of slumber. Yeah, I think that's a great point. He really embodies that liminality. Are you asleep? Are you awake? Is this a memory? Is this a prophecy? For sure. And so he exists within all of these worlds very successfully. Mm-hmm. And that is derived from Freudian psychoanalysis with the world below the waterline But Mm -hmm. I think that he is different from the other naturalistic surrealists, and the best example because he's better. (laughs) Well, (laughs) let's be honest. I mean, Rene Magritte is pretty phenomenal for sure. But Dali was the best uh, draftsman of all of them. He was a way better, and and this is where drawing and painting come into place, like really good solid drawing and painting. Because Dali was very good at drawing and painting. He was a he was a great craftsman. I'm not going to say he was a draftsman like a Peter Paul Rubens or a John Singer Sargent, or a Zorn, but he was very good, and he was a crazy worker and a crazy craftsman. So I put him in, like, maybe the Hans Holbein craftsman level, 
or just one of those guys that he was, you know, he he was he was right there on the cusp of of draftsmanship to the highest level, where he was able to use his skill set to take it to that next level and to create his ideas in an eloquent way. Where other artists who were surrealistic artists just were limited by their by their skill set, and he really didn't have much limitations. He didn't. And I also think a difference is that his brand of surrealism was paranoic and very much rooted in his own paranoia as a man. And I think we see that politically. The example that's coming to mind is his, uh, the prophecy of the civil war. I I don't think that's the actual title, but it's in a parenthetical where it's this work that really predicts the Spanish civil war Mm. and was painted before that time. And when you look at it, especially with historical hindsight, then you think, oh my God, he really was anticipating this terrible, disastrous time where so many people really suffered. And you see that in the two interlocking forms. There's a lot of violence and the grab between these two amorphous, androgynous figures. And Mm -hmm. it really is quite predatory. And so I think that he was paranoid, whether it came from his own way of Mm -hmm. connecting to the collective subconscious, whether he was just reacting to the world before the outbreak of war. I don't know. But I I see that as a distinguishing factor between his work and the work of the other surrealists, is that it just feels anticipatory in a really frightening way. Like, what is about to come? His sexual impotence, his fears of political outbursts, whatever it is, we see that more in Dali's work than in anybody else's. And his fear of death. I mean, like you said, he was very Woody Allen-esque where it was like (laughs) sex, love, and death. That was his whole, you know, that was his basic universal themes, which is like you say he wanted to be admired for his universality and how he was able to reach the, you know, the public. Uh, he He was a populist in many ways in that respect. And he was able to really do it and achieve it with his themes and his subject matter because I guess you're right. It's what... Everybody can relate to. Everybody can relate to death. Everybody can relate to love. Everybody can relate to sexuality and phobias and feelings of paranoia. And I think that he captures these quintessential emotions, these the, the essence of us as human beings that and 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 take that and project it onto canvas. That was really intense. And I also think that he wanted to be. I, I don't want to say that he was a narcissist, but I feel like he he really was. Like, he wanted to be the central character. He was totally a narcissist. Yeah. He said to Breton, I am surrealism. Right. And actually, he was kicked out of the surrealist group because right. of his political ideologies and also because he was so egoic. Yeah, and he, he painted Hitler in one of his paintings, and they were obviously super anti-fascist, very anti-Nazi. They called him into this kangaroo court. They questioned him. They, you know, basically said, well, you know, what's going on here? What are you doing? He goes, hey, man, you told you told me that we're supposed to paint the stuff that we're dreaming about. I dreamed about Hitler. I don't support Hitler necessarily or not, but I dreamed about him. So I put him in my painting, you know, so basically go F off. And he became like, like you said, I am surrealism. I am a genius. He said it over and over and over again. I'm a genius. I was told I was a genius. I knew I was going to be a genius. I am a genius. My my wife thinks I'm a genius. The people say I'm a genius. I'm a genius. 
and I'm I'm the voice of this culture. And he branded himself as a genius, as a way to sell and market his art. Oh my God! And the way he looked and acted, it was just so. What the what again? We believe and project to be the quintessential artist. He's got the Dolly esque mustache. He's got his hair slicked back. He's always wearing these really crazy wild outfits. He's got a, a paintbrush that's about two feet long. He's always painting. <laughs> he's saying things that are totally insane. Like he's crazy. Like he's he's just waxing about sexuality and sperm and penetration in interviews. Like and people. You know, when I saw him on the Dick Cavett show, for example, like when he introduces him, he says, well, this this is a, you know, a, a gentleman who's very odd, who's very strange, <laughs> who, uh, and then he comes out and he comes out with an anteater. And the anteater is his pet. <laughs> he want, like he's always trying to be disruptive, yeah, right? Yeah, provocative. Yeah, but disruptive. And I think that now we can all relate to that because it's those people who are disruptive that... Uh, we look for as vanguards of movements, right? So he come out, like, what's the next thing I could do to be disruptive? Let me go on this TV show, say some ridiculous shit with an anteater, and I'm going to always be <laughs> dressed in my, in my Dolly-esque outfit, and I'm going to be remembered, you know? And so if you don't remember me here, I'm going to make films, I'm going to be doing those, those uh, portraits, like coming out of the egg. There's a lot of famous photo- photographers who also shot him, as well, and famous filmmakers who who used him in, in their yeah, movies Hitchcock. as well. Yeah, Hitchcock. He worked with Hitchcock. I think he tried That's to insane. do this movie with Disney that because <laughs> of funding after World War II, it didn't happen until 2003. And so he was getting his hands in all sorts of spaces. And my mm. favorite photograph, just because I love cats, the one where he's jumping and yes. there's water and then who cats took that? leaping. I don't know. That's amazing, though. But like he, he was part of that. He was part of... He seemed to insert himself in... Everything film, everything photography, everything art, poetry, psychology. Yeah, he was uh, inventive, and he also he was, was creative with his positioning of self and his his uh, visual aesthetic ideologies. So I think he was a really smart man. And we have to talk about his objects, his lobster phone. So he even worked with sculptures. Do you know that work? I, I don't. I don't even know that. So that's kind of a Dada work, and Dada and surrealism are similar movements. I think Dada is more about political political subversions and surrealism is more about sexual pathos. But in this work, Dali took a phone, so a functional phone, and then the headset, where the headset is expected to be, mm-hmm. he put a whole body of a lobster. And the genitalia of the lobster mm. is right by the mouthpiece. It's very Dali. It is. But then if you think about the function of a phone, you caress this mouth or the old phones. You would mm. hold the piece. You mm. would. It's a very intimate experience. It's by your face. It's by your mouth. And there's this almost soft gesture uh, and caress when you when you interact with the phone. And to do mm. that with this crustacean mm-hmm. that is really hard. Bottom and, feeder. <laughs> yeah. That's eating its own shit. Really, if you think about spiky, it. And spiky, and it yeah. would hurt if it was close to your cheek. Yeah, there, there's a, a movie called Naked Lunch. Uh, it's very Burroughs, very Kerouac. It, you know, it's more Burroughs, actually. Uh, but it, it makes me feel that, like, that probably they borrowed from Dali in that way. And he was... You know, his, his work is very dark. You know, it's got aspects of Hieronymus Bosch to it, right? That that other world, that fourth dimension, like sick, sexual, uh, indulging 
reality, Oof. right? That's and, such a good word for him. He is completely indulgent in his perversions. He really is. And that makes me think of The Great Masturbator, which just the fact that he would title his work The Great Masturbator right. in the first half of the 20th century is crazy. And there's this big face that's looking down. It The figure has been cut off at the knees, which is a symbol for sexual anxiety that you're not able to fully perform. Mm -hmm. And then there's a female face that's kind of by his genitals mm -hmm. with the expectation of fellatio. And then she's coming out of his mind. I mean, it is a fun image to unravel. And it does exactly make me think of Hieronymus Bosch and the Garden of Earthly Delights with the figure masturbating with a strawberry. Yeah. And then he's got that one painting where in the painting he has the red hand that seems to be red because it's the overuse of uh, master masturbation over and over and over again. And perhaps once again, it goes back to his father saying, you know, he feels like he's projecting this idea that sexuality is wrong. And, and that it leads to illness and the eventuality of death. Yeah, it's basically it like Catholicism. Sorry, but it's... <laughs> <laughs> no, well. but like, it, you know, it, it, it is really kind of shunning sexuality and, and just really making you feel like it is all bad. And yet... Here is Dali later in his life, really almost obsessively, which we don't, I didn't mention this earlier, but I'm glad you brought it up, always talking about masturbation. And always, religion at the end religion, of his life. Yes, and religion. So, you know, at the end of his life, uh, he unfortunately, which is one of the worst, the worst pass an artist can die from is he... Uh, he he got Parkinson's disease. Uh, my father did as well, so I understand the heaviness of of that. And he was always shaking, always shaking, and was really had to. Even though he lived into his eighties, he had to stop drawing and painting at seventy six years old. And it was because of his Parkinson's. So it's a very ironic, horrible way to go out. And and when Dali went out, uh, it was very sad. You know, seeing Dali in the bed dying in his last, you know, days was really crazy to look at. You know what I mean? Just to, to see this master, this, this crazy creative light, ascended light of, of energy, even though there was darkness. Um, and there he is kind of shaking, quivering, not even able to create anymore, which is what he really lived for. He was a creator. Art was nothing more than one of his m different ways to create. It was an outlet to plug his creativity into, as was film, as was photography, as was his uh, character, his persona that he created for the public. He, that was his art. He was living art. He was living and breathing art. And I think it's ironic, too, because, you know, I, I feel like as much as he talked about perversion and sexuality and you would think that he was this womanizer. You would think that he was this guy who was just like taking advantage of women or being with women. He really wasn't. He was kind of the opposite. He was kind of a non-sexual guy who lived for his woman. And also know? the privacy of his own sexuality because that's where it was safe. Yeah. It was a complicated guy. He was a complicated artist. And I think that uh, the outro to this is that when we look at his body of work, we don't think of him as a scared, timid, quiet person, because all he wanted to be was the antithesis of that. And we look at his work and we think darkness, perversion, sexuality, out of controlness. We see pictures and videos and photos and TV shows. He was wild. He was a wild man. But I think he was really the opposite. 
I think he only created this persona to be a wild man because he was so painfully fucking shy and so fucked up. Yeah, and I see so much quiet solitude in the work and Mm -hmm. so much stillness and so much fear. Mm -hmm. And I think that reconciling the outer and the inner is what surrealism is also about. And about giving the artist space to identify what's inside, what's true. What an artist, right? What 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 a story of an artist. That's like the quintessential artist story is that he was creating things from real places, real fears, real paranoias, real anxiety, real perversions, real everything. You know, he actually had thousands and thousands and thousands of erotic drawings that he did. And I think a, a, another note before we, before we stop this is that, and you, you told me this too, that Dali is one of the most forged artists in the world. Like you don't know, it's very difficult to know, to prove provenance with his work, to prove authenticity, right? Yeah, because there are just so many. And especially with his drawings, he did a lot of works on paper with crayons. And those are often the ones that are parodied. And forged, Yeah, right, right, right. That, yeah. that was my nicer way of saying forged, yeah. faked. But yeah, that people will be able to do that easily because I don't know if there's a comprehensive catalog raisonné of all of the works on paper mm. since there were just so many. And also when he would sign checks, oftentimes he would, he would do a drawing on the back because he knew they would never cash his check. Because they were like, oh, damn, I got a real Dali on the <laughs> oh, back. He was so smart. <laughs> yeah, it was so smart. He would do these horse drawings on the back and sign it Dali. And so people were like, yeah, I'm not going to cash that. <laughs> and, and at one point in New York, when he was living in New York, they say that he was spending a quarter of a million dollars each month with just that was just what he would spend. So he was making a lot of money. He came to the States. It was a cash crop for him. But he was he was spending a quarter of a million dollars uh, just just living on his lifestyle monthly. So he was balling, straight balling. And on that note, straight balling, guys, please leave <laughs> us a review on iTunes wherever you can. I know you can't leave one on Spotify, Stitcher. I don't even know all the platforms that are out there, but leave us a review and follow us on Instagram, Art Attack Podcast. Okay, follow us on Instagram, leave us a review, say something nice, give us five stars. I mean, why not? This is what we do. We love to do this. We do this because we love it, because we have to do it, because we really believe that art education is not accessible enough. And here we are giving it to you free from two people who are really experts in their field. And we just love talking about it. We love doing it. This is what we live. We live it. We love it. And you guys should too. All right. Peace.